Well, church, do you believe in miracles? I hope you do. Our God is a God of miracles, as we're going to see. We continue to explore this little passage in Acts. I know that we're supposed to say that we believe in miracles. I know we're supposed to have enough faith to say that we believe in miracles. I hope we really do believe in miracles. Years ago, we were asked to pray for somebody who had a particular heart condition. It was a development. You know how it goes. You go to the doctor. You're not feeling well. They do some sort of scan things, and they find this and that, and you come back, and they say, well, this is what it is. And the prayer request goes out, and in this particular case, we prayed, and then, uh, you, you know, about a week or so, couple weeks later, I followed up with this fellow. I said, hey, can you tell me what's going on with your, uh, with your heart condition? And he said, uh, he said, wow, I went back to the doctors and they checked me out again and uh, it's gone. And I'm like, oh, praise the Lord. Wow. And then he goes, yeah, they must have read the scan wrong or something. <laughs> What are we praying for? <laughs> With God, all things are possible, right? With us, we know it. We're limited, we're finite, we're human, we're imperfect. With us, think, there's a lot of things we can't do, a lot of things that are impossible for us. No matter how hard we try, we can't do some things. But with God, this is not the case. God is not like us with God. All things are possible. Our Father, we come before your word now, just grateful. Grateful that you love us enough to talk with us and communicate with us and give us, give us this beautiful Bible that tells us about you and it tells us about us. And, and Lord, we don't deserve that, but you love us and so you've given it to us that we might know you. You've created us for that purpose. And so we do pray as we're together this morning that our time together would draw us closer to you, that would help us to increase in our knowledge and our understanding of you, and wherever we might show up in the pages, Lord, that we might see a bit of us as well, and how we ought to relate to you as a result of what we're hearing, what we're feeling, what your Holy Spirit is doing in us as we worship together. Have your way in this place, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Saul is off to Tarsus, if you've been following along in our series, and he's gone to regions beyond. Now that that is the case, the storyline in Acts shifts to the Apostle Peter again. We last saw Peter in Acts chapter 8, where he went to Samaria after hearing that many there had believed in Jesus. And in our passage for today, he's on a similar mission. You see, the account we looked at last week uh, concluded with the churches in Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. It said they were all being built up and multiplying. So the gospel is spreading through the region. People are coming to know the Lord. And the apostle Peter, a spokesperson for the early church, a major player in the early church, decides that he's going to go and visit them. Peter is visiting believers all across these areas, going in and out among them, as Linda read. And specifically, we are given two accounts of events involving Peter here this morning, one in a little town called Lydda and the other in Joppa. 
Lydda is about 22 miles northwest of Jerusalem. So basically you get in your car and you head towards Brewer and, and that's about that same amount of, of, of time and uh, you'll get there 22 miles on the road from Jerusalem to the coast uh, and the city of Joppa. So there Peter comes across a man named Aeneas and this poor guy has been confined to his bed for eight years. He's paralyzed, he can't move and he's been in bed eight years. If we want to know what that is like, um, I guess we're going to have to use our imaginations because Luke doesn't give us any of those details, which we're coming to understand that, right? Luke is really serious about helping us understand what's going on in the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church. There are many times we read these accounts, we're like, yeah, but what was it like to be him? Well, I guess we, we might only imagine because we only know his name. That's what we get, not much more. We could say being paralyzed for eight years. We could, we could imagine what that would be like, that his life was very hard, that it was a struggle. But what he wished for, what he, what he wanted, how he dealt with his infirmity, his frame of mind, none of that is given to us. I would assume that he wanted to be healed, but even in this count, he doesn't ask. It's, it's not like he's asking. It appears that Peter just takes the initiative to speak to Aeneas um, and make him well. Which is, of course, the sort of thing we've come to expect out of a guy like Peter, right? He's just going to kick the door in and go do what needs to be done. Uh, he makes a stunning declaration, and he, and, he, and he gives an interesting command. And he asks, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. So flashback to Acts chapter 3, the healing of a lame man who's laid daily at the beautiful gate, who's begging alms of the worshipers who are going to the temple. And Peter declared to him, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Later when a crowd had gathered because of this miracle, Peter was quick to tell them about Jesus. And he says, in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. See, Peter testified similarly before the council when they dragged him in to explain what he was up to by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. See, Peter wants there to be no confusion. He's not the healer. Jesus is. Peter is not building a ministry in his name. He's carrying on the reclaiming ministry of Jesus in Jesus' name. He is very quick to do what C.J. Mahaney suggests that we all might do uh, in his book, Humility, and that is transfer the glory to God. At the end of your day, as you reflect and pray, maybe before you nod off, whatever success whatever praise, whatever accolades, whatever credit may have come your way, transfer that to the Lord. We are here to make much of him. We are not here to make much of ourselves. These little lives that we have are not all about us. We're going to come and go. He endures forever. And he is worthy of all of our praise and worthy of all glory. And that's what Peter is doing here, making much of Jesus. Jesus Christ heals you. Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. And Aeneas did just what Peter told him to. The man who was paralyzed stood up. 
And we read that this dramatic transformation didn't go unnoticed. All the residents of Lydda and Sharon witnessed this great miracle, and they turned to the Lord. And that's a pattern that we're seeing in the book of Acts, an important pattern, right? God has blessed this church, this early church, with the ministry of miracles. The ministry of the apostles, in particular, are accompanied by signs and wonders, great miracles. But it's not just the apostles. Stephen, right? Acts chapter 6, 8, doing great signs and wonders among the people. Philip, Acts 8, 6, and 7, casting out demons, healing the, the lame and the paralyzed. Jesus had told them, you will receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And the power of the Spirit manifested itself regularly in that early church in the form of miracles. So what exactly is a miracle? Is a miracle when something unlikely happens? I know sometimes we say it's a miracle that we got the family up and ready for church on time. <laughs> Or it's a miracle that we made it through this really tough week. Or that it'll, it'll be a miracle if the Patriots make the playoffs this year. <laughs> but none of those are true miracles, are they? A miracle is a supernatural occurrence. A miracle in Scripture is when God acts in ways that are outside the laws of nature. A miracle in the Bible is not just an event that is astonishing or extraordinary or awe-inspiring. A miracle is when God intervenes in a way that is beyond the pale, that is contrary to, that, is, that goes against in some way the natural course of things. And we know that God is perfectly capable of doing this sort of thing whenever he wants to. Right? Whenever he wants to. Anytime he chooses. And the Bible is full of miraculous accounts. And our text today describes two of them, just two. I mean, paralyzed people don't usually get up and make their beds, do they? Uh-uh. Dead people don't usually open their eyes and sit up, do they? That would freak a lot of people out if that was happening with more regularity. But our text details these two events, and it also gives us some insight. Not only that God is a God of miracles, but those miracles serve a purpose. You see, God is a God of order. Whatever he does, he does on purpose. So when it comes to miracles, what is their purpose? What are they for? The first and um, most obvious answer is that miracles are for those who receive them. <laughs> you you kind of knew that already, but it's, it's maybe worth saying. You know, the, the blind who see, think what that must be like. The lame who walk, the lepers who are cleansed. Come on, the demoniacs who are delivered. This is true. Miracles are for the ones who receive them. Certainly for the benefit of those who receive them. But that is not, friend, that is not the whole story. In fact, I would argue that it's really just a small part of the story. And the purpose of miracles. In the ministry of Jesus, and now we see here in the ministry of the apostles, miracles serve another purpose. This isn't to detract from their awesomeness. This isn't to detract in any way from how, how inspiring they can be. But it's important that we understand this. Miracles serve the function of confirmation. When a Holy Spirit minister like Peter steps out and he begins to preach and teach the gospel, his message is validated. By, by being empowered by God to perform these miracles. Mark 16, 20. 
says of the apostles' ministry, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. The writer of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Right? The, the, the writer of Hebrews is begging us, Hold in there. Hold fast. Don't fall back. Don't slip. Don't slip away. You know what Jesus has done. And how should we escape if we neglect what Christ has done for us? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. While God also, listen, bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. God is bearing witness to the message of the gospel with these miracles, with these signs, with these wonders. I've already alluded to Acts chapter 8 verse 6 and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and when they saw the signs that he did. The signs got the people's attention, right? Miracles authenticate the message. Miracles legitimized the teaching of God's ministers. This was even true for Jesus. Remember that account when Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He comes to him at the cover of night, right? And he says to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. Come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. John 2, 23, speaking of Jesus. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. John 5, 36, but the testimony that I have, and this is Jesus himself, is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So the signs again, authenticate the messenger, confirm the message. John 20, verses 30, 31, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his names. These are written so that you may believe. What's written? The signs, the miracles. Why? So you can believe. It's not that it just ends in themselves. They're awesome. They're terrific. We pray for them. We want them. We love them. We celebrate them. We see them. But they point us always to something more, something greater. Over and again in Scripture, this is the pattern. Signs and miracles confirm the message. They aren't just the result of faith, but they're designed to gender faith. And, and this is often the sequence. A miracle happens. It draws a crowd. It creates the conditions by which people are willing then to listen. The word is presented and faith is created by the word in those who would receive it, okay? If Aeneas is healed because of his great faith, Luke makes no mention of it at all. But he is clear about the consequence of the healing. A man who was paralyzed is up and about and the people of the town are so impressed that they turn to Jesus. A similar script plays out in Joppa. A woman named Tabitha had become ill and died. She was a beloved member of the community, full of good works and acts of charity, Luke says. So let me ask you this. If anyone were to give a one-sentence summary of your life, what would you hope it to be? Because there's a one-sentence summary right here. This is Tabitha, full of good works and acts of charity. What are they going to say about you when your time has come? What are they going to put on your stone? 
Don't say it out loud. <laughs> Tabitha lived a generous life. She was the kind of person that no one wants to lose. She was, she was the one whose death leaves a great void in a family, a great void in a church. Her body was at least partially prepared for burial by her friends and laid in an upper room. The fact that she even had an upper room in her home fuels all sorts of speculation uh, among scholars about her potential wealth, the possibility that she may even have hosted a house church. You and I might see this reference to an upper room and be reminded of another such place, maybe, with the disciples of a newly crucified and resurrected Jesus who only numbered 120 at the time were gathered and waiting. An upper room would be the place where the Holy Spirit descended in power and birthed the Christian church. Somehow they knew that Peter was in the area, and the believers did, and, and they sent for him. I don't, I don't know how that happens. There are a lot of these little details. You're thinking it was not like somebody got on their phone and texted Peter and said, Hey, are you around? But Peter rose and went with those who came to get him, and uh, they showed him where Tabitha laid. And Peter put him outside, and he knelt down. He, I, he prayed. And here again, if anything supernatural is going to happen, it's not going to be through the strength of Peter. If anything supernatural is going to happen here, it's not going to be through the strength of any of us. It's going to be through Jesus. Peter doesn't have the power in himself to, to dispense it as he wills. That was Simon the Magician. Remember that? That's what he wanted. And, oh, give me the power so I can use it for, for my good. For what a temptation that is. See, God isn't going to trust us to drive that. That isn't going to work. Peter knows. Peter's humble. I'm not doing this, but I need God. So he turns to, he turns to God in prayer, and then he turns to that lifeless body. And, man, he, he gives another command. He had told Aeneas to rise. He tells Tabitha to do the same. She opens her eyes and sits up. And the Bible says that Peter presented her alive. <laughs> Sometimes you come across these phrases in Scripture, and you just can you, you can envision that, right? There's a mourning community downstairs. They love this woman. They've missed this woman. They're so sad that she's gone. They can't believe it. And it is Peter's pure delight to present her alive. She's not dead. She's alive. And that account right there, to me, that's reminiscent of Jesus. You remember when Jesus healed the son of the widow of Nain? He, he comes across this funeral procession. Not coincidentally, he happened to be in the neighborhood. And there's a funeral procession, and he goes and he heals this only son. This woman's only hope. She's a widow. She's lost her husband. She had a son. She's lost her son. And Jesus comes upon and tells him, get up, rise up, raises him from the dead. And the scripture says, and he gave him back to his mother. Gave him back. The reconciliation, the restoration, the power of God to give you back what you thought was lost. This is who our God is. Peter is pleased, pleased to give Tabitha back to her friends. Presents her alive to the church. 
And the story of that miracle spread like wildfire, as you imagine it would and as you imagine it should, all through Joppa. And the result was what? The result is many believed in the Lord. The miracle of resurrection confirms the trustworthiness of the messenger, the veracity of the message, so it will be received, so that people can come to faith in Jesus. And people are getting saved in Joppa. As we would say, the gospel fishing is good. Jesus said, I'll make you fishers of men, and the gospel fishing is good. And so this ex-fisherman, Peter, now a fisher of men, stays there for many days with a man named Simon, who was a tanner. Now there are a few details from these verses that we just covered that might not jump off the page as significant, but do have a place in moving the bigger story along. So I want to share them. And then we're going to wrap it up. It's a short passage and a short message this morning. First, we note that Peter heals a man and a woman. In case anyone doesn't know this, make sure you know it today. The mercy of Jesus is for everyone, regardless of gender. Okay? He's equally merciful. This is who Jesus is. Peter goes to Lydda. Then he goes to Joppa. You might not be up on your um, maps of Israel or, or that area. So I can tell you this. He's ministering in areas that are further and further away from Jerusalem, which means they are less and less Jewish in general. And he's, so he's basically he's moving out into areas where he would probably be just a little bit less comfortable Ever do that? Yeah, if you're from Maine, you're, you're uncomfortable as soon as you go past Kittery. Um, so you understand, you know, what this might possibly have been for Peter. I mean, he's a bold man, but still he's got his comfort zones and he has, he has his idea about how things ought to be, right? And he's preaching, he's been preaching hard to the Jewish people, but now God is calling him out. God is calling him beyond the walls of Jerusalem. And so he goes to Lydda and then he goes to Joppa. You see, as he makes his way toward the coast... The, um, the big surprise of the gospel is being unwrapped. That's what's going on. Town by town, region by region, the forgiveness of sins and the promise of salvation in Jesus is not just a message for Israel. This is an invitation to salvation for all people everywhere. Right? Every kindred, every tongue. We just sang it. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. This is who the gospel is for. And the big present that is the gospel is being unwrapped. And the Lord is preparing Peter for this revelation of who this is for. By sending him to people and to places that he would not naturally probably think of as chosen. Or selected by God. Do you have any of those people or places in your life? Maybe you do. Well, don't go there and don't go to that one. And I want to caution you. You know what? Let God be God. Don't worry about where he's sending you. He may have chosen people that you would not. In fact, I guarantee you he has. 
Even Peter's living arrangements here in Joppa are a bit of a stretch. Again, they wouldn't jump off the page to us. and We not even see them necessarily as meaningful or significant. But think about this. In the first century, Jewish people would not generally be fond of tanners. So he's going to stay with a guy named Simon the Tanner. What do tanners do? Do you know? They tan. Yes. They look so good. They look, they look like they've been in Florida all year long. Yes, they tan hides, right, skins, which means that they do all day long, they deal with dead animals. And in Jewish ceremonial law, what happens if you're in contact with dead animals? Do you remember? You're, you're unclean. You're unclean. You're un, you are ceremonially unclean. It, it puts you at a disadvantage for who you're supposed to be uh, with and where you can go and when you can go there and all that. No, I'm not taking you back to Leviticus. We're not going to read all through this stuff. But you can trust me on this. The people will sort of want to keep arm's length with the tanner because that guy is always dealing with yucky stuff that we're not supposed to touch. But then again... Peter takes up lodging with him. Peter takes lodging with a man who is by law unclean. And you know what? He's about to receive a vision that's going to redefine clean and unclean. But that is um, for another message, an another day. Um, for now, let's just be reminded and marvel if we might at the goodness and power of our God to heal. Do you believe in miracles? He can and he does heal what is broken in people. He has the power to heal bodies. He can even raise the dead. He heals for the good of the one in need of healing because he loves. He heals for the glory of his name. He heals for the joy of those who love the one being healed because he loves. And also to capture their hearts with his grace and power in order that people might listen to and receive an even better everlasting healing. That would be the forgiveness of their sins and the promise of eternal life that is in Jesus. And that's why C.S. Lewis rightly noted, miracles are a retelling in small letters of the very same story which is written across the whole world in letters too large for some of us to see. Miracles testify to the gospel, to the healing, to the saving power of Jesus. Our Father, we praise you and thank you that you aren't like us and that you are not bound as we are bound, limited as we are limited, frustrated as we sometimes get frustrated. Nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is intimidating to you. All things are possible with you. Our Father, as we open your word and we read about miracles, the, the profundity of them could 
easily escape us. If we don't see them, if we don't feel them, it's the same as trying to get our head around the national debt. It seems to be a league unknown to us, uh, a realm with which we are not familiar or we cannot bring down to earth. But Lord, we do know what it's like to be paralyzed, immobile and unable at times to do what we want to do. And we do know what it is like to be dead and to have no ability whatsoever to respond. And we do know what it's like to be set free and empowered. And we do know what it's like to be raised and to overcome. And so, Father, as we ponder these miracles and others like them, help us to see how they reflect the greatest of miracles, the story of Jesus, the gospel, and the way that you're continuously still building up your church. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.